Welcome back to Sweat and Grime, everybody. This is actually uh, our second run at the show because Rick and I both forgot to hit the record button a second ago. But tonight, you have your host, Brian. And Rick. And Rick. And we actually have a full house. So on the phone, I'm going to try to get it right this time because luckily we didn't record the first time around because I totally botched the introduction. We have Daniel Fisher, who is the senior vice president of the Associated Equipment Distributors. Did I get that right? Boom. Excellent. Yes. Man, nailed it the second time around. So that is who we have on the phone. And then in person here in the studio, we actually have Scott Finch. Uh, he is actually a former coworker of mine. He sold equipment uh, at Southeastern Equipment with me. He has since moved on, as have I. Uh, welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Daniel, obviously, thank you for, for calling in and being willing to be on the show tonight. We really do appreciate that. Glad to be here. So could you... For a second time, <laughs> walk, us, walk us through how you came to be associated with the Associated Equipment Distributors. Uh, sure. I'll, let me see if I can get it exactly right again. Um, <laughs> it was perfect, perfect the first time. <laughs> yeah. I uh, grew up in uh, the Washington, D.C. area and was always interested in politics, policy, and kind of law, you know, legal issues. Um, after college, I went to law school and I kind of quickly discovered that I didn't necessarily want to practice law. I was really into the political policy side of, of things. And, um, so as my fellow students, when they were going off and doing their kind of summer internships and their summer associate positions at big law firms, I went over and started, um, you know, doing it, working on Capitol Hill. And I uh, worked from a center from Idaho for a few uh, summers and then kind of got my um, foot in the door. And then after law school, I got uh, hired on right away to work on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, after a few years on Capitol Hill, uh, about four or five years, I would say, I went to a, uh, a smaller law firm and Associated Equipment Distributors happened to be a client of that law firm among, um, among several other clients. And I got to work... Um, for AED in, in a uh, daily capacity. In about 2016, 17, uh, the association decided to bring all their government affairs functions in-house and open their first DC office with a full-time in-house DC government affairs rep. And they asked me to come and do that. And that's where we are today. And so I realized I already asked you this and, and it had a lot bigger impact the first time, but what drew you to the AED uh, when you when you first started working with them? What really made you decide to pursue the AED as a as a career? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I you know at the law firm I got exposed to you know a variety of different industries, and really the you know, working with AED was just a lot, I mean it was a lot of fun. The issues are I'm passionate about aside from being paid to advocate for them. I actually do, you know, believe in infrastructure. I believe in uh, pro-growth tax policy. I believe in, um, you know, less regulation, all the things that AED believes in. So it's easy to work on behalf of the industry. And also, frankly, the people I deal with, these, you know, executives at, um, the owners and executives at these construct, at these equipment dealerships are just, I, I, they're just great people. I think they're really down to earth uh, people and they, um, and I, you know, so it's a good, it's a good industry to be a part of. So let me ask you this just to kind of further specify what it is you do, because associated equipment distributors kind of sounds like a very broad general term. What do you guys actually do as an organization? What is your role? So we do ma um, many different things. So from <clears throat> educational sessions to, um, you know, we have a foundation that works on workforce issues. We do events for networking, um, as well as educational opportunities. We have a big summit every year, which attracts kind of the most of the industry, um, to, uh, you know, set location. Um, I guess what I do, which is also a big value proposition of AED, of course, is the advocacy side of things. So I, I, uh, handle our advocacy up on Capitol Hill, as well as our advocacy within the States and in Ottawa. And I um, also manage our marketing and 
communications team as well. So that's something you and I actually talked about on our, I think it was after our dirt interview. Uh, You guys are involved in Canadian politics as well, not just us. Hey, yes. (laughs) That took me a second. (laughs) And when you, and when you guys talk about what you're involved in, I mean, it's a pretty broad perspective, ain't it? Daniel from like agricultural construction, like mining forestry, Yep. You guys kind of touch on a lot of big industries here. No, absolutely. It's our members, you know, obviously you're selling equipment to not just construction, the ag sector, as well as energy, mining, forestry, industrial, uh, forklift kind of applications. So, yeah, it's a, it's big and, you know, our members really range. It's a lot. Of, some of them are, you know, small companies, you know, 20 employees, one location that, you know, go all the way up to kind of a, um, you know, a big, uh, you know, bigger company, maybe some of them publicly traded that are operating in multiple states. That's pretty impressive. So one of the questions I have, you, you mentioned that you guys did, you know, you have a broad spectrum of things that you do. And one of the things is workforce development, things like that. Do you personally kind of have a specialization or are you kind of involved in a lot of those other ones? How does that actually work on your end of the table? So my specialization is more on the public policy side and the communication side, the external affairs side. Um, so I would not say I'm at all necessarily a expert in, you know, workforce development, except that I do have, I'm, I'm dangerous enough to know workforce policy as it relates to what's going on in DC and what we should be advocating for to help alleviate the workforce issues in the industry. So, I think we'll go down that road a little later. What I would love to kind of start down the the road I would like to begin with is kind of expounding on what we talked about on the dirt, kind of getting into the infrastructure bill and what that materially means for people. So could you give us kind of kind of similar to what we did on the dirt? Could we have just kind of a, a high level rundown of what is involved with the infrastructure bill, what we can expect to kind of come down the pipeline and what the fallout of that's going to be? for contractors and guys on the front lines? Yeah. So I think the, you know, as I did on the dirt, I also um, want to kind of differentiate quickly between what is the infrastructure bill and what is known as the uh, social infrastructure bill or the human infrastructure bill, or just what I would just call, let's just call the social spending bill, Mm -hmm. um, which is completely different. They're unrelated proposals. They've been tied together for a number of maybe political and rhetorical reasons, but they're actually very, very separate um, issues, completely separate, likely completely separate votes. So we have the infrastructure bill, which is about $1.2 trillion in physical infrastructure investment. So that's roads, bridges, highways, water, ports, airports, uh, broadband, and uh, electrical grid, power infrastructure. So just a, a significant amount of money that's going to go directly to rebuilding this country and p- putting people back to work. $550 billion of that is new money. So that's on top of kind of what already is out there, that the programs that are already authorized. Um, and so what it will mean once this bill does pass, and I think it will pass, is lots of economic activity. Contractors are going to be busy. Um, I think, you know, we talked about this before. It won't be, might necessarily see the impact tomorrow. It might not be next month, but it should give a lot of confidence that there's going to be jobs out there for a number of years. And importantly, the bill also includes a five-year highway reauthorization bill or within that, within this infrastructure bill contains a highway reauthorization bill for five years, which will provide five years of certainty. If you're into, if you're a highway contractor, particularly that will provide five years, knowing that your state DOT that's five years of certainty will then give you that confidence to know that there should be five years at least worth of projects on the highway side coming uh, for the future. And so last time you and I talked on the dirt, uh, there was uh, there was kind of a milestone coming up with the bill. And I can't forgive me. I What was that milestone and what ultimately resulted from that milestone? Yeah, so the milestone was, um, at, so I mean, let's go back. This Bill, the infrastructure bill, again, differentiating from the social spending bill, mm-hmm. passed the Senate back in August. And it was uh, had 19 Republicans supporting it, including Majority Leader, uh, or sorry, uh, Republican Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, so it's 
it, and yeah, I think it, it's a good bill. It's a very good bill. Um, it's, um, unfortunately got caught up in politics. So you would have thought that as soon as it was ready to go, uh, Nancy Pelosi would have just put it on that, um, house floor and said, Hey, let's pass it, get it to the president. Um, at the end of August, let him declare victory and let's then move on to the next thing. Um, well, that's not how it worked. Uh, she was, uh, by the liberals or the progressives in the caucus when, um, said they wouldn't support the bill unless there was, um, unless they had to, were ready to do with the social spending bill. So, uh, for the moderates in the Democratic Party, though, were very much up in arms. They wanted the victory. They thought they have to go run in swing districts and have to make the case to their constituents on why they should be sent back to Washington in 2022 yeah. at the election. And, and so then she committed to have a vote on September 27th. That didn't happen. She then committed uh, to have another vote uh, last week, actually, and that didn't happen. So she extended the highway program, the surface transportation reauthorization program until December 3rd. Um, and so really now they basically have a December 3rd deadline for her to bring up the infrastructure bill for a vote or they have to extend the surface transportation reauthorization programs. So why did those other two votes not end up happening? Was that something personal with Pelosi or was that the, the Democrats in general holding back because they, they wanted it tied to the social bill? Um, a little, I would say more the, um, the la the, uh, latter, which was that the liberals in the caucus were really pushing back and would withhold, held their votes. Um, twice, I believe that, the speaker wanted to have this and clear the deck of this infrastructure bill. And twice, I think she was rebuffed by the more liberal part of party. But then again, she also, I don't think had the support of the president where she was counting on him to come and use his bully pulpit and use his influence to say, look, we'll figure out the other bill, hopefully, but let's pass this infrastructure bill and give me this victory. Instead, he came to Washington even as soon as last week. And she was expecting him to really kind of say, let's just pass this. I'm going to Rome. I'm going wherever it's all climate change. We, I got to get this bill out there or get this bill to my desk to sign it. And she, I think, was actually flabbergasted as far as news reports go that this wasn't that he didn't make that case on why the infrastructure bill should pass as soon as possible. And then we'll continue to work on that other bill. So. So I guess as, from a total point of ignorance, kind of where do we go from here? You know, just because they set another deadline, it, you said that was December 9th, 3rd? December 3rd, December 3rd. So w w is there is that a hard and fast deadline or is that just another goalpost that can get moved again? Uh, well, it's certainly not hard and fast. They'll have to, they'll basically have to take action though in some form before then. Um, I do think that what you have on December 3rd is you have a convergence of a lot of different things. And so hopefully they resolve this before then you have a, we're hitting our debt limit as a country. Um, and that needs to be resolved. We have government funding expiring for the whole entire federal government expiring on December 3rd as well. So there's a few different <laughs> big ticket items out there. Um, but right now where we stand is the house Democrats are trying to draft a social spending bill as we speak. They're hoping to have that ready to go in legislative language, something that can pass the House over the next um, couple days or weeks. And then at that point, they will pass the infrastructure bill, supposedly. So, Is there a, is there a skilled trade training bill that's going to come along with this infrastructure bill since the due to lack of help? Um, there's some in, within the infrastructure bill, there's some, you know, I guess some skilled trades kind of um, training money. But as far as like a big robust program to really uh, have that workforce development, that is not in the infrastructure bill. I will tell you that that likely could be in the social spending bill, which will have money for career and technical education and uh, other kind of workforce issues. Is there anything out on the floor that you hear Obviously, it's a big part of our infrastructure is passing the bill and keeping America moving and stuff. But do they do they even acknowledge or recognize like the labor shortage in the construction trades that were hurting so bad? Or are they just basically think about pumping out money and pumping out the bills to, you know, build America back and build our roads even better? But the just I guess the question is like with the labor force not really being there to meet the demand. 
Like, is there anybody even noticing that on the floor? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, no, I, I mean, they're absolutely. In fact, in the you know, ten year over the last ten years, I've seen a significant shift in terms of. It used to be just everyone. Let's emphasize higher education. You know, our four year schools. Let's emphasize everyone needs to go get a four year degree. And I think over the last decade, there's been certainly a shift um, as far as the policymakers go, understanding that we have a significant workforce shortage. It's not just construction industry. I mean. Right, it's the manufacturers, whole it's restaurant workers. I mean, it's hospitality. I mean, you know, every, you know, a lot of these members of Congress. I've talked to them about this. And they've seen it firsthand. I mean, they travel through airports and have had, you know, half the airport restaurants closed because they can't find the workforce, or you know, they're staying at hotels and stuff like that. And you know, they, so they 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 certainly get it. I guess the struggle on the workforce side of things, particularly at a federal level, is what can be done. Education is inherently a state and local issue. Um, and really every community has different workforce needs. So, you know, you might have in North Dakota, they obviously have a huge need for, you know, shale on the energy side of things, but obviously in inner city Boston, they don't have that same kind of need. So the question is what can the federal government do? And they've put out money. I mean, they tried to throw money at the problem. I think a lot of the issue is that it's actually kind of a cultural issue we have in this country. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, it's just kind of ironic. Like I talked to a lot of the big excavating contractors around the area here and they're scrambling to get, you know, tires and oil filters and parts in general. And these are bigger size contractors. And then this bill kicks off and they get their hands on it. You know, it's almost like they don't even have the supplies at the local level here around us to maintain tire blowouts and, you know, oil to get dropped to be able to keep the machines moving to bolts and nuts. I mean, we got this manufacturer issue going on. We got the labor shortage and we got this bill. So obviously it's, it's making waves from small, small ones, to big ones, you know, all the way up to the white house there. Yeah. I mean, regarding the supply chain issues, that's obviously a slightly different, but related issue. Um, and again, I think everyone, you know, I, the president seems to think he's going to send national guard troops to kind of run the trucks right. and do that thing. I mean, but we can't, you know, as far as the infrastructure bill, we can't say we're going to oppose an infrastructure bill because we don't have the workforce and we don't have the supply issues. Right. I mean, I think that hopefully these things work themselves out and hope, you know, especially hopefully the supply chain issues. And obviously, it's hopefully the workforce issues do work themselves out. By the time this bill is at full throttle, which will be, you know, if it passes today, we'll see maybe the money go out. You know, you'll really start seeing it in the field. You say, you know, 8, 12, 16 months down the line, hopefully a lot of these issues will work themselves out, that the workforce has come back to work, hopefully, um, and that the supply chain and trade issues have worked themselves out. Well, do you think maybe that's one of the reasons that they want to get both of the bills done? Is so they kind of they, they correlate to one another. One's going to get, you know, the prep work done, buy equipment, uh, get ready to do these jobs, and the other, the social, will bring in funding to actually make sure everybody's fully staffed. So is that, in, in your opinion, is that part of the plan? If we do them both together, we're knocking out both sides of the issue at the same time instead of doing one before the other. No, no, the, I mean they're they're solely tied not for policy reasons for political reasons. And, um, and, you know, again, the, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the entire bill. What like the career technical, what the educational side of that, the reconciliation or the, um, social spending bill is, is uh, it's not, you know, we're not talking, it's like trillions of dollars, you know, it's even probably like not even the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, so I think that's just kind of a drop in the bucket. So there's the only reason they're currently tied is solely for political reasons. Not, there's nothing policy-wise. I was going to say, if I remember some of the, the small reading I've done on this, the, the social side of the bill tends to be more focused on uh, health care type stuff, like care for the elderly, elderly and, and things along those lines. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, I mean, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, you could argue that they contradict each other in some ways in that you're kind of expanding the social safety net of this country while we need people to get off kind of the government 
Um, so you you, you can say tit on this show and it won't offend anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you say that. It's ironic, though. They, they do need to get off to tit because I'm a contractor out here and... You know, we're I'm fighting unemployment to get workers, you know, and now I'm sure. fighting McDonald's. They're starting people out $15, $16 an hour, and I ordered some pizza the other day, and I go pick it up from Marco's Pizza, and I'm fighting the freaking pizza place. They're starting people out 17 to $20 an hour to deliver pizza. I mean, this is yeah, no, this is just crazy times right now. Hey, for the first time in my life, I gave a tip at the drive-thru at McDonald's. Because <laughs> the lady, when she took, down there doing the lady when she took my job. order, she said, I apologize for it taking so long. There's only three of us, and we've been here since 6 a.m., and this was 8 o'clock at night. Wow. I do hope Marco's Pizza is, an adverti- is advertising on this podcast. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, but, you know, the one thing we do need to remember, and this is really how we're going to get ourselves out of a lot of this issue, and it's not going to happen, this Congress, but at some point this country has got to realize that we need immigration reform. And, Thank you know, you. there's not enough people here in this country currently to do all, all, all these jobs. So we really need to figure out our immigration policy. And to give people a path to get in this, get in here. So let me ask you this, uh, because we are starting to dive down the workforce development. So fuck it. We're just going to roll with it. So <laughs> um, balls deep. Yeah, baby. that's right. So uh, when it comes to workforce development, it's it's I would love to say it's my personal opinion. But really, I think the majority of the trades would all stand up and agree with me that one of the major issues in this country is how hard secondary education is pushed and. Do you see any sort of real recognition of that uh, at the D.C. level, that that we focus so hard on driving people to college that really skilled trades across the board have been thrown to the wayside? And, and that's really where a lot of the workforce problems we are experiencing right now are stemming from. It's not so much that, yeah, we do we do have some issues with guys sitting on unemployment, but I wouldn't say that's anywhere close to being even even a, the majority. I, I would say that's not even close to being half of, of the problems we're experiencing right now. Instead, it's literally there are not bodies out there to fill seats because they all went to college because all of their guidance counselors and teachers told them that's the only way to be successful. Is there any anyone really addressing that at the Washington level? Uh, yeah, I think there is. And I will tell you, President Trump did a great, I think, job when he came in of actually emphasizing the skill trade, skills trades and also emphasizing that it's not necessarily the federal government or government's role that industry needs to partner with maybe community colleges to really um, in, to produce these 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 people the next are these you know skilled to fill these skilled positions but i do think that what we have again i mentioned this earlier is a cultural issue in this country and i don't know that the i don't think any of you want the federal government legislating cultural issues sure no, uh, the not culture really. of this country is is that parents think and you know i i get it i mean the baby boomers all were raised that you had to go to college and now, even now, it's kind of like you don't even just need to go to college. You need to go to a master's degree. You need to get that PhD in philosophy. You need to do all these kind of things. And it's frankly, that's just out of step with where we are. It doesn't meet the needs of our country. And it's out of step with where employers are and what we need right now. But that's a cultural issue. I mean, parents need to realize that these are good, well-paying jobs and they're dignified careers and that they're not used to, they shouldn't be ashamed for their kids to get into these trades. And that's, and that's really what we have here. And that I don't know that that solves itself. Washington certainly doesn't solve that. Um, at AED, what we do is we, you know, we kind of produce video, you know, we do videos, we do marketing to try to make, you know, let parents know that these are great careers. I mean, these are, are not our jobs, they're careers. And you can make a great, great living um, and really can be, have a satisfying life by with little debt <laughs> by going into this, this industry. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. It's not going to go nowhere. You know, it's a supply and demand. It's a need. It's everything about our infrastructure. If we don't keep it up, it's going to fall. You know, I think a lot of it, as we talk about though, a lot of it was a money grab as people sat there and 
work their guys into the ground instead of giving them a more, you know, 40, 50 hour work week kind of thing, you know, and give them somewhat of a quality of life. They take a, they take a skilled guy and they just run them into the ground, especially if you got the knowledge and those old timers that have retired and passed on, they had that mentality of work hard, play hard kind of thing. And now I feel like we got to put these powder puff gloves on and kind of like fondle these people into getting into the workforce and not, you know, you're going to have to work more than 30 hours and, you know, you're going, you're going to have to work on Saturday and not the barbecue. So I think, I think it really is a pretty big culture shock when you take somebody like that and they're looking for a job and they get thrown out into the skilled trades. I mean, it's, it's famine or feast, man. It's like fucking Donkey Kong out there. Well, yeah, but I mean, well, first of all, I don't recommend you fondle anyone. I was about to say, say, let's, say let's be careful here because we're going to get start getting <laughs> some interesting people into the skilled trades here if we start hey, we're talking to <laughs> all walks of life here, baby. <laughs> but I will, I will tell you, I had the same. So I was sitting. I actually flew out to Chicago for the day. Yes, yeah, so our headquarters is outside of Chicago, and I flew out and I sat next to a an older flight attendant who, um, and we were talking about this, this exact issue. And she sees it even in the new hires at American airlines, the flight attendants, none of them take pride in their work. None of them want to actually work hard. They're all bragging about how many sick days they can take off, how they can take having COVID to, you know, milk the system, all these kind of things. And she's just thinking like, whatever happened to like having pride in your work, having, being a part of a team, doing what was right. And I think, again, that's not going to be something that's unique to the construction industry. I mean, this is just a generational thing we're facing. No, I think there's there's two or three generations of people that the word work ethic, the term work ethic, just has absolutely no meaning. It, it's no concept. So, well, this is where I'm going to step in for just a second as the resident hippie of the show. Uh, you know, I'm, I'll be forward. I, I homeschool my kids and... You know, we're in Michigan where pot's legal. And so I'll just, I'm going to full on go hippie here. It, it is interesting because I think there's a lot of cultural things going on in the country. Um, you know, some of them we've already talked about, but another cultural thing that's been kind of interesting that Rick sort of touched on is uh, the <laughs> boomer generation specifically was very much, I don't even think it was work hard, play hard. It was just work hard. It was literally you work your entire life and you, you stock away money for college for your kids and and you make that savings account fat and you make sure that your family's taken care of. And then you retire and most of the time you die shortly after because you worked your entire life. The new generations, it seems like it is a radical pendulum shift the other direction where it is, it is all about living in the moment. It's all about enjoying the comforts of life. It's all about doing all of these fun things. And, you know, work is a way that you keep some money in the bank so that you can go out and enjoy life. And I think there's a mix there. I think there's a happy medium that, that joins the, those two. I, I think the, the newer generations are way too far one way. I think the boomers were way too far the other way. And I think what's, what we're kind of experiencing now is everyone kind of finding that middle ground and it's a messy process. And I think it's going to take a lot of time, but you know, I'm kind of with Rick. I think, I think there's a cultural issue within the trades just because it is so many crazy hours. It's you communicate by screaming and yelling and bitching at each other and uh, you run your guys into the ground until they're ragged. And I think that's really burned a lot of people out on the trades. But at the same time, the answer isn't, you know, let's do a 24 hour week and we'll call it good and we'll go out and and drink and get on tender and, you know. I, I, there's a, there's a medium, there's a balance there. And I think we're kind of finding that right now. I'm with well, you. You know, that. go ahead, Daniel. Go ahead. Have, oh, I was going to no, say, so I actually read an interesting tweet, um, or guy, kind of a Twitter thread or whatever you call these things. Um, yesterday on this exact topic that in the, the kind of the conclusion I'm paraphrasing of the gentleman who was writing this tweet was that, it's not, we actually don't necessarily have a shortage of the people to do a lot of work in this country. What we have is that there's not, you don't realize you can re have the American dream anymore. And a lot of people don't understand that part or that, or maybe they, view, maybe they not just don't understand. Maybe it's not that we, in this country, that hard work doesn't necessarily produce that white picket fence and all those things that you are, our parents 
or the baby boomers had heard about, and that drove them, whereas the current millennial generation and younger, they see, um, they just don't see that. So what do they get out of hard work? They get, like you said, longer hours and less time to spend on, um, you know, Tinder or less time to do their gaming. And, um, and, but, but without necessarily the financial payoff and they just, maybe they see themselves as never being able to own that home in the suburbs and being able to make a family and making enough money to work one job, to have a family and all that kind of stuff. And that, that might be deterring them. So I, I think, I think that's actually a really valid point. In fact, now that I think about it, there's, there's two things that kind of came to mind as you were walking through that. The, the first is I do feel like uh, a lot of the new generation and I don't even, where are we at in generations now? What is the new generation? Like gen- pussies. Yeah. <laughs> generation pussy. Well, Come on Gen now. X is the, they're the 30 year olds. Well, so we were millennials and, and then, then we there's a generation gen next. Was it gen X next? Gen, and I don't know. Uh, I don't know the cross dressers. I, I guess it's gen Y. Is it Gen Y? Gen is it Gen Y? Is I don't know. Yeah. Whatever this, the the kind of 18 to 25, 28 year olds, I would say, yeah. um, whatever that generation is, whatever we label those, I think, I think part of what we are seeing right now uh, in, in the lack of people returning to the fast food jobs and these l- traditionally lower paying jobs, I think we are seeing a lot of just it's, angry it's backlash. Gen Z, by the way. Gen Z. Okay, Gen Z? so we are Gen Z. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of that's angry backlash for exactly what you were saying, Daniel. It's it's why 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 even try? Because I'm gonna go, you know, I'm gonna go to college. I'm gonna work my ass off for, you know, let's let's be conservative here. Four years gets you a bachelor's degree that is the equivalent to a high school diploma. Fifteen years ago, um, you're gonna work your ass off for the new high school diploma. And you're still going to make shit wages or you can stay in college and you can spend 60 to 80 grand getting your master's degree. And now you're a little bit ahead of everyone else, but you're still kind of right there in the pack and you're still now you're $80,000 in debt. And okay, now you're going to make what? 60 grand a year with that degree. And so 80,000. Okay. Even 80,000. I think you're pushing to double or triple that. With a with a master's? Oh, absolutely. No way. Depending on what college you're going to go to. No, no way. No, I not these days. Hundred grand, two hundred grand. Degrees no. And yeah, I mean, if you no, off, well, let's well, let me trades. let me specify. If you go for like a law degree or a doctor, or you know, you, you, if one of those traditional professions, but I'm talking about like the the vast majority of the workforce that's okay. in the business world and stuff like that. Like, in order to get hired these days, a college degree doesn't mean shit unless no. you've got at least a master's. Yeah. And you're going to make what with that? And, and I'm, you know, again, not doctors, not lawyers, things like that. But in a regular traditional business setting, you're still not going to make shit for wages. No. Not enough that you can, like Daniel was saying, you can't afford the white picket fence and the house and the the comfortable lifestyle. That's, you know, that's not there anymore. And you just spend all of that money just to get where you are to where you can rent an apartment. And so yeah, I think the, part of the the issue we're seeing is a lot of just angry backlash of everyone kind of putting their hands down, down to their sides and saying, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm done. But, it's not but those, worth putting the effort in. But but the, the parents that did go out and work, though, you know, they went out and busted their ass and worked nonstop. And what did they what did they tell their kids? They said, I work hard and you're you're going to go to college. I want to pay for it and get you to college so you don't have to. So you can do better like than me, me and work but, this. But hard. then it turned into it turned out to be a giant lie. Is essentially where I'm going with this. Is it that that because I was told that exact same thing. Like you need to go to college so that you can like you're going to hit the next earning tier if you go to college. But with our generation, that's where it kind of all flipped around. And I think you know the newest generation now they're they're savvy to what's going on. They're fully aware that they can go to college and spend sixty to eighty thousand dollars on a degree and still make mediocre wages. But the flip side of this whole thing that I, I was kind of thinking about as you were talking, Daniel, is I think that's where uh, as a country, we've done a poor job of communicating. And as the trades, we've done a poor job of communicating that you can get into the trades and it is going to be a lot of hard work, but you're not going to come out of college. You you won't go to college and you won't come out with 60 to $80,000 worth of debt, but you do have Eighty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of earning potential, depending on what field you go into and and what you're doing. 
Like you can afford the white picket fence if you go into the trades. And I think that's something we've done a really poor job of communicating to the newer generations. No, I fully I agree. agree with that. And, you know, and the other thing also to remember is that, again, this gets a little more into like the societal things, but the baby boomer generation also has the largest concentration of wealth of any generation in probably world history. Yeah. And so they're holding on and that's, you know, at least uh, as someone, so I am kind of on the edge of what would be a millennial and a generation exercise, like kind of what I call the Oregon trail <laughs> generation <laughs> where like, I didn't, I, I played Oregon trail in school and all that stuff. I didn't have a cell phone in college. I didn't get my first cell phone until I was, you know, out already in law school. And so we're, I'm kind of in that forgotten realm that's between like, you know, born in 1980, um, right there. And so, um, but you know, the parents of a lot of these, the, this new generation had, I mean, they have a lot of money and they can actually, the kid doesn't necessarily, they don't have to kick the, their children out at 18 or 21 <laughs> or 26 even. I mean, it, I guess, so that also kind of, I think, plays into it. There's a lot of different things, and I, yeah, I guess the, the workforce issue is really just very, very complicated. Yeah, there are a lot of dynamics at play. Um, right. And just that's why I really enjoy these conversations is kind of going down the, the thought process of, you know, all of the factors that contribute and how can we potentially address some of them. And I do think communication is key. I do think the trades need to do a much better job collectively of getting into high schools and talking to students before they commit to going down the college path. I will say consistently on my YouTube channel, uh, I get comments all the time from guys that, that actively tell me I've told my parents, I want to go into the skilled trades, but I have my parents, I have my guidance counselor and I have all of my teachers telling me that I'm, I'm going, I'm not going to amount to anything if I do that. And I need to go to college. And that's nuts to me. I like, that's really troubling. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how we fix that. I don't I don't really know how we do a better job of effectively communicating at the high school level and then getting more importantly, how do you get the guidance counselors and the teachers on board that, hey, the skilled trades isn't the failure option? Well, there's that line of commercials that are out right now that show the guy, uh, I believe he's on an excavator and it says about things coming up, getting ready to pass funding, uh, start your career here, build a job here. You know, you're rebuilding America. I haven't seen those. While you're also building for yourself. And there's, you know, billions of dollars set aside for this and hundreds of millions set aside for that. So I guess a question for you, Daniel, is uh, because ultimately that will benefit you guys as uh, the equipment distributors or the people that you represent. Is is your organization really pointing any funding towards trying to uh, – well, you've mentioned that you guys are in workforce development. I guess my my a better question should be what, what does that look like? What what are you guys doing on the workforce development side of things? No, so uh, – no, uh, absolutely. I mean, it is the – I mean, the, work, the workforce issue is the biggest challenge facing equipment distributors. So it's, and not only is it obviously not just – finding diesel service technicians. Um, well, first of all, our members also have challenges finding even sales guys and marketing people and every, all, all kinds, you know, everyone in the dealership, but obviously the skilled uh, trade is the, uh, the big issue. And so, you know, through our foundation, which is, I don't work with daily, that's kind of our, and it's a separate organization to um, AED, but we are on a campaign to raise a pretty good sum of money by 2025 to, um, to invest in these kind of in whether it's diesel technology programs and high schools and community colleges, we accredit uh, these kind of programs and um, really, and then again, also, like you said, the marketing aspect of getting, letting people know that these jobs are out there. But I, I one thing I want, do want to point out is that you mentioned about high school guidance counselors. If you, we've discovered that if you're just engaging students at the high school level, it's what level it's actually probably too late. And that really, really it's, it's middle school. And what I think has happened, I don't know how it is in real America where you guys live, but <laughs> I know in my uh, fake inside the beltway bubble, they all got rid of the, um, you know, wood shop and oh, yeah. home yeah, and yeah. all that kind of stuff back in 2009. And so, I mean, I remember, t- you know, even auto shop and those kind of things. So I don't, you know, it's, 
we again, so we've so one of the concerted efforts at AEG that we've made at a, with our foundation is that we are going to target. We've got to go younger than community college. We got to go high school, and we also need to figure out a way to tap into middle school. Yeah. Have Have you guys even had any kind of thought process or talks of you're you're talking about building? You know, basically getting people in the mechanic diesel side of it, whatever, but kind of having like a little playground with all sorts of different kind of equipments where people could get their hands on them, kind of like a family family gathering with the kids getting young to older to spark any kind of interest to possibly, you know, bringing in some guys with some knowledge and kind of putting like a little bit of a training thing together for these people. Because what we see and we talk about with a lot of the people is there's there's people that are equipment dealers getting on board and they hire Joe Blow that was the dozer guy for the Army, for example, and he's out teaching them how to slot trench and, you know, roll a couple boulders around and then you'll get a couple other people out there that are picking up content from, like, even Brian's videos and they're asking them, if they could use this in uh, some of their schools, whatever, but not really having any kind of knowledge or education on the teaching side, yet they're basically taking it. They're taking a dollar and they're spinning it, but they're not really giving out any formal kind of education with real live knowledge. Is there anything along those lines that's ever kind of come about? Well, if I'm understanding your question, I mean, I do think that you know what we do as a foundation at our AD Foundation is. We do accredit, you know, community college and high schools and their programs to make sure that they are getting that kind of real world um, experience. And I think a lot of our students then also are given, you know, placed in apprenticeships or placed in at our um, at our dealers so they can get kind of that real world experience. Um, but I do, I think I agree with what you're saying in that. Well, I think we have a huge missed opportunity in this country because every kid has a Tonka truck of some sort right Every yeah baby they indestructible in the sandbox. and even my nephew i mean all he wants me to do is to get him like you know he's five years old and he wants all he wants is construction equipment and you know a tool belt and stuff like that and so we lose these kids i mean these kids are genuinely interested in this stuff when we lose them at some point yeah i agree I think I think to a de- to a degree and to an extent we actively turn them away from it, you know. And it's not it's not something that we're totally conscious of, but it's you know instead of playing out on the dirt pile with the Tonkas, it's oh I bought you a new iPad. Why don't you go in and play on the iPad? And and then it's as you get older and older, it's I, I think the big problem in this country is there's just this sun this subtle underlying tone that has been consistent that. You can you can be a plumber. You could be an electrician, and that would be all right. You can make a living. In fact, I'll be totally honest. I actually had this talk with my with my father. So I was, uh, I had the arrangement with my parents when I went to college. I did go to college. Uh, I took the scenic route, got a, a degree that should have taken four years. I took six because you know, why not enjoy yourself? Being warmer. <laughs> yes, and uh, and so the arrangement was my parents would pay for my school as long as I didn't fuck around. And I decided to, of course, go fuck around. And so we had a discussion one night. This is one of my, my, you know, clearest memories. And it was where my parents sat me down and my dad said, look, uh, you don't have to go to college. You can absolutely be a plumber and make a good living. But the underlying tone wasn't like, hey, maybe school it is just you're not you're clearly not interested. I was a very mediocre student in school and it was just completely lack of trying. And my parents were very aware of that. The underlying tone wasn't, Hey, you know, it's okay that you hate school and it's okay that you don't want to go to college. Like here's a great alternate career path. That's actually really, really like you can make some really good money and this is going to be great for your personality. Instead, it was like, you know what, if that's the, if that's the route you want to take, you can, you can still make pretty good money being a plumber. And that just underlying tone is like, if if you can't hack it here in college, you can absolutely go this route. And I think that is kind of just an underlying tone in our country when it comes to these conversations and kind of going back to what you were saying about losing kids along the way. I think that's part of it. It's not this overt aversion away from the trades. It's more of just this 
constant underlying tone that, yeah, you could do that too if you wanted. Oh, it's the negative connotations that are always attached to it. it yeah. Well, you, I mean, think about driving down the road. You always point to the guy on the side of the road with a shovel and go, that's why you go to college. Yep. It's oh, yeah. those sort of subtle things. And I, I think overall in the country, that that is the tone that needs to change. I think... Now, that being said, I do have, you know, one of my personal predictions is that here within the next five to 10 years, uh, that tone is going to be forced to be changed when you see labor rates jump up. And I don't know, this is purely speculation, but what, 15, 20 percent maybe in the skilled trades because there's literally no one in them? Well, the knowledge is dying. The bodies aren't showing. You know, the other quality of life, like when you talk about that, though, I think like I, I'm kind of with this whole Gen Z thing. Like they, they've changed things. They've evolved things with the technology. Like this is an exciting time to be alive. But yet, you know, it's hilarious. Like they can have a thousand, two thousand dollars in their bank account, and they're totally could net, um, totally content skipping work for like the next week. You know, <clears throat> and it's just funny when you get looking at some of this stuff. Like over in Europe and Germany. Do you know their labor laws? They aren't. They're only allowed to work forty-eight hours a week. That's including overtime. So when you talk about the guys that you're pointing at with the shovel, and he, he's there six, seven days a week all summer long, like when when does this turning point also kind of go to what the Gen Z is kind of also talking about and bringing? You know, of when do you start kind of giving the quality life to the guys in the trades because you're running them ragged and they're constantly out there working these hours nonstop away from their families and shit. I mean, who the fuck wants to get in something like that? If I was young, kind of looking at that now and you look at the gravy train, dude, I wouldn't want to sit there six, seven days a week, 10, 12 hours a day in the sun and in the cold. I mean, so when, when do, uh, when do the employers also kind of catch up with the times that these aren't robots. These are actual human, human beings. beings with minds that we need these bodies. And, I mean, these are some of the, when you get into the trades, these are some of the smartest creative minds that are out there. I mean, they're building stuff from nothing. They show up to a job that nothing is there, and they assemble subdivisions and skyscrapers. And, I mean, they just, they build so much stuff, and they're so creative. When do, you, when do you start giving that quality of life to these people? And when do the employers kind of catch on board in America as a whole? Is like the Gen Z has kind of caught on and it's changed. I mean, the times have changed. When's, when's it turn? Well, I don't want to put words in Daniel's mouth, but I've, if there's anything I've picked up from our conversation this evening, I would say Daniel's probably on board with, with some very strong legislation regulating the work week. <laughs> I hope so, man. I, gosh, I don't know. I don't know about that. But, uh, <laughs> no, but, but, but I think it, it does come down to, so if you have more workers, I think employers also will be, um, you know, less, then, then there's less of a need to kind of run their current employees into the ground. Yeah, if that's there's true. More right. People working. But then the other thing is that I think we're also entering an era where and you're seeing this now as, um, Brian, you mentioned as wages are increasing and stuff like that, where it is it's, right now. It's in, I mean, for maybe a couple decades, it's probably been an employer's, um, you know, they have the upper hand. And especially as we were, I don't want to say a couple decades, maybe as we were coming out of the, you know, 2009 timeframe. Um, but, you know, I think you're seeing a shift out there. I mean, I, I've seen it even in my kind of, I guess, non-skilled tree. I certainly what I do is not skilled um i just kind of talk and bullshit for a living but um, a skill <laughs> there's a lot of skill involved with that Absolutely. Believe it or not. <laughs> it's, it's so what um but even you know in our association i mean we've had the younger generation say they don't want to work at you know they some of you know as we're pulling out of the pandemic some of them have left and they're being able to pay it all get paid a lot more they're able to work from home they're able to to do all those kinds of things. And I think, I mean, I, I can tell you even just from a, the construction equipment executive perspective, I can tell you that if they could find someone who was willing to work hard for four days a week or whatever, it was able to do, you know, do the job and showed up and pass a drug test, all those things. I mean, those things would all work themselves out. I think. I agree. A no. hundred percent there. Absolutely. Now I've got, I've got a great topic that we can talk about. That's really going to ruffle some feathers. 
Gosh, well, I can stop bullshitting about this topic. I really have no idea about. <laughs> right. He, well, he can't gotta, talk. Has no skill. He's on a podcast. That, yeah, yeah. This is yeah. We're all bullshitting <laughs> about things we don't know about. That's what the whole premise of this show is, <laughs> right? Uh, no, but here's one for you that you probably also won't know anything about. But when are we going to get some legislation to come through to finally knock weed off of these insurance huh? claims or the the insurance drug testing? Because that would help our industry out tremendously if we would stop testing for weed <laughs> any, any <laughs> luck there daniel um i don't I, I you know so i think certainly the what's going on in this country is you're seeing a move toward legalization of marijuana yeah now i can tell you as a personal perspective i was very libertarian in the drug area for much of my life and then now i own a home a row house in downtown dc where I get to see drug deals going on in front of me <laughs> much of my day when I'm at home. And it kind of changes your perspective about the impact and I'm smelling marijuana at all times and stuff like that. So as a personal level, I'm not sure <laughs> about whether that's the right way for us to go. But I mean, obviously I know that the challenges associated with our members, particularly on the insurance side, like you said, um, in terms of drug and alcohol testing is a maybe Imagine being a cat dealer in Colorado. <laughs> you're, you're not probably it's a tough time to hire a new uh, service technician. Sure. No, I I, I agree. Um, you know, we we are moving towards uh, legalization, and I will say it has been interesting to see the states that have legalized. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, and, and I'm sure you're familiar, being in Washington, uh, Michigan is a legal state, and it has been really interesting to see the mental shift that has taken place um, now that it's legal, it's almost like a kid turning 21 where all of a sudden drinking has kind of, it It doesn't fully lose its luster, but it, at the same time, you're not being naughty anymore. And so the draw isn't there to just really go after it. And so uh, I do think that has been interesting. You know, Rick and I actually did a podcast a little while back that talked specifically about marijuana in the trades and drugs in general. Um, and, and I think at the individual level, if you can handle yourself and leave it to outside the job, I, I don't really feel like there's anything wrong with doing it on your own time as long as it doesn't enter the, the job site, you know, treat it like alcohol or anything traditionally. The, the really frustrating thing about the, the skilled trades in particular is insurance companies specifically have latched on so hard to, we have to drug test and on those drug tests, marijuana is the one uh, that is always going to come back positive. If you've if you've anywhere in the last thirty to, to ninety days, depending on what kind of test it is, it's always going to come back positive. You know, with any other drug, cocaine, heroin, any of that stuff, within I want to say it's twenty four or forty eight hours, it's worked its way entirely out of your system. And so, I think that's where it's really frustrating, just from the standpoint of that is a very rigged testing system. Uh, and unfortunately, <laughs> that's what a lot of this, well, a lot of all trades, let's be honest, it's not just the earth moving trades. That's what a lot of the trades enjoy doing. And so I do feel like at some point, uh, I almost feel like it would have to come at it from the legislation side, just because insurance companies, I don't think will ever release that, that chokehold on drug testing. I think that's one of those things that they latch onto that this is a solution and it's the only way to be safe. And I don't foresee that changing on their own. Yeah. So I don't, I actually, so I might disagree with you here. I actually think it's going to come on the technology side oh. where we do have a test that can um, determine like when you're high at, you know, in real time, as opposed to just having, um, you know, marijuana in your system. And I think that's where the change will likely uh, come and the one, but the one thing I think that we need to remember, just in general as a, a as a country, is that this country is not designed for super quick change. <laughs> I mean, the, the I don't think we can handle our, it, right? And it, but this is what I think. What happens is right now we're going through a situation where we're dealing with a just you know rapid information through social media, the twenty four hour news cycle. And everyone says, I want to change this. I want marijuana legalized right now. Everyone should be, you know, all that kind of stuff. And regardless of how you feel about it, our country just isn't, it's not, we don't change things overnight like that. 
So the legalization of marijuana is still kind of, I mean, I don't know how many states are actually, you can, it's legalized, but you got to figure, I think it might maybe half the country at this point. I yeah. mean, and so these things will come along, but I don't, I, I, legislation isn't always the solution to everyone's problems. And in this case, I do think technology will work its way out and that there will be a test that you can, you know, again, test in real time if you're high or not. Well, see, that's where I'm going to have to politely disagree because legislation is always the answer as long as it is the legislation that I agree with. (laughs) It's perfect legislation at that point. Absolutely. You couldn't do better. (laughs) So kind of coming back onto the topic and really what your specialty and expertise is, uh, is there we've been talking about the infrastructure bill specifically this evening. Is there some other legislation that we might not be aware of? that could have some pretty big impacts on the trades in general that's kind of coming down the pipeline? You know, I, I mean, I think really the infrastructure bill over the next, and I look at things in two-year increments, you know, because that's a congressional session. And, you know, what you kind of see on the agenda here is um, is, is really infrastructure. Because once we get into 2022, we're focused on the 2022 midterm election and not a lot a lot happens. And I don't know. Um, I mean, I do think there's going to be regulations coming out of Washington and um, possibly unlikely legislation, but possibly in the context of the social spending bill that does have, um, uh, you know, a lot of labor protection and stuff like that, which depending on whether, you know, you're unionized or not, or want to be unionized or not. um, I think that kind of, you could see a lot of that or some of that stuff, coming out of uh, whether it's Congress or whether it's the National Labor Relations Board or uh, Department of Labor or that sort of thing. But I mean, really, um, again, it's, we're not, in, we're in a, we're not in a monarchy. We're not in a, uh, even a parliamentary system. We are in a system where things happen slowly and really Congress only works on certain things at certain times. And I mean, I really see that the infrastructure bill probably in terms of opportunity is going to be the best. Uh, back for the skill trade. I, I do think you've mentioned twice now just kind of how nothing moves fast in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. government. I do think that's kind of one of the, whether it was intentional or not, that is one of the built-in safeties of our legislating system is it is a very slow-moving machine. And that really does ultimately, even though it doesn't feel like it, it works to all of our benefit because if things did change overnight, uh, I, from a legal standpoint, we would be ping-ponging all over the place. And it is nice that it does take years to get this stuff through and and change isn't, okay, from zero to 60. It's a very measurable step up. Um, so I, just my personal opinion, I, I feel like that's actually one of the positives, as frustrating as it can be and as much as we rag on it from time to time, I do feel like that's ultimately a positive when it comes to our governing system. No, I agree. I, I think it takes a lot of the emotion out of legislating. Now I'm not saying legislators don't, um, you know, don't legislate based on emotion or what's going on sure, out there. Sure. But, I mean, but, but it's not like something happens then the next day, you know, Congress can pass a bill on the issue. I mean, these things take, they take time and sometimes they take generations and um, you know, in some areas it's probably too slow, but in most areas I argue that our founding fathers were very, um, you know, they really knew what they were doing. And yeah, they pretty insightful. Insightful, yeah, absolutely. And so things just don't happen. As frustrating as, as it is for, um, you know, many people, it's just not the way our, and I, it's not the way our system works. Sure. Uh, what also dictates, so once they pass this bill, like how's it kind of, who, who dictates and how's it determined, like how it's spread out through America? where this goes to this state, this goes to this state. Like, obviously, you got some some states that, like Michigan, with horrible infrastructure, it's just crumbling faster than we could even spend the money versus you get down to Florida and they got a lot nicer roads, probably a little bit better bridges. I mean, what kind of dictates that and how, how does or who does kind of divvy up the funding? Do you know? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of the, so at least on the road and bridge side of things, it'll be divvied up through the normal, what is like called the formula allocation. So, um, and the state, essentially, uh, federal highway or I think Congress sets a, a formula 
were based on a number of probably different factors, population and such. And then uh, federal highway funds then flow through the form what's known as the formula program. And I think most of what road and bridge and those kind of things, those projects will flow through that normal formula. So then your state DOT, Michigan State uh, Department of Transportation, will then receive that money from the federal government and then have to, you know, then go through their divvy it up locally and go through or do what they do under normal circumstances. Um, and then some of the other ones, I'm not so sure. I will tell you that I know Michigan has had a, a, a famous lead pipe issue and there's $50 <laughs> billion dollars to replace all the lead pipes in this country. And so I imagine a lot of that will be targeted toward Michigan and certain states that haven't upgraded their, um, their pipe situation with their pipe situation. And then also the, and then a lot of the broadband money will obviously flow probably to rural areas and underserved areas that don't have the uh, broadband funding. But as far as the, the uh, surface transportation infrastructure that will go through just the normal federal higher program funding hmm. allocation. Interesting. So I do have a question. I, I may put you on the spot a little bit. Feel free to decline. I don't want to put you I, I don't want to put you in an awkward situation, but at the same time, I am curious just about your opinion. You know, we're Michigan. Uh we're well, up until five years or so ago, it was a fairly liberal state, and then all of a sudden it flipped. Yeah. But um unions. Kinda what are your thoughts from your position on unions and how they play into the dynamics in the in in the labor market? <clears throat> Um, <laughs> that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> you know, and feel free. Like it's a solid answer. I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position if you're not okay yeah. answering that. But I do want to specify that anything that's said here is absolutely a personal opinion. And I am asking you on a personal level. So totally up to you on whether you want to answer or not. But I am just kind of curious because of what you see on your end, uh, just kind of what your thoughts are. Well, I mean, I guess let me preface this with saying that my great grandfather was a sheet metal worker union member. Um, and so was, you know, so my family has been, uh, very pro union, um, throughout, you know, their life. And I, I generally, I don't have problems, I guess, with the unions. I don't know that, um, I guess it kind of comes into where you, if you have, I, you know, I, it's a tough day. I'm just going to stop talking. Okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. <laughs> I will say, you know, one thing where I get really frustrated with just uh, where culture has gone in general is we should be able to talk freely. And, and I should be able to say, Daniel, personal opinion, totally irrelevant to anything work-related. You know, kind of what are your thoughts on this? And you should be able to answer that as a human being. But unfortunately, I do hate it that we've gone to this cancel culture to where, heaven forbid, the wrong person hear that. Then it gets back to this person. It's this person. Now, all of a sudden, well, you either you're either you hate unions or you love unions, depending on what. That's really frustrating uh, that it's really limited the the conversations that we can have. But that being said, I totally understand your side of the table. And that's the. No offense taken by not answering that. I totally I'll, get that. I'll go out. I'll go out on the limb there for some people speaking. I think Biden's infrastructure package is designed to boost the unions. That's why I got to think of it all. I think there's a little money game going on. Is is that true? Is that is it possible that that money, or it, I mean, is it ultimately just the pass through of money because it's going to employ employ more? union workers i think yeah, it'll be so employing it, more union workers here in michigan without a doubt yeah i, th yeah, I mean certainly in certain states i mean it's going to go to depending where you are in the country i mean so if you're in new jersey new york michigan yeah i mean it, inevitably the union workforce is going to you know benefit from that but i don't know that that's the same thing in south carolina tennessee or oklahoma um but either way the industry will benefit i guess i you know one thing i don't like is that we get into this position where we pit non-union versus union yes um I and, we have a one size, and we have a one-size-fits-all <laughs> sort of solution to everything and that that doesn't work in this country and you know it just is what it is i mean you know we're are we're just not gonna so if you require you know funding to go solely towards um say a pro infrastructure project it has to be union workforce i mean 
that's great. In Michigan, that won't be a problem. But I will tell you that in Oklahoma, that that money will never get out the door. Yeah. I mean, it's just not, it's the way it is. And so, and I don't know that forcing unionization on, you know, a state that's right, you may right to work is necessarily the answer. Again, I have no, I, I think I just look at this as a policy issue and not sure. necessarily, I have no opinion on unions, um, you know, whatsoever. I, I, I think they've done a lot of good in our nation's history. So um, but where we are now, I just see it. It's just such a dividing issue that I think that at the end of the day, we need to look at are people being put to work and are these projects getting done? And that's kind of how we should take it. I, I 100% agree. It's funny. We we did a, an episode a little while back that was union versus non-union. When you start in the industry, what you, sh- what you should gear up for and what you should look for. And um, ultimately, that's kind of what Rick and I talked a lot about is it is frustrating that it is a you're either with us or against us. And and that's on both sides of the table, whether you're pro or against anti-union. Um, that's such a silly way to think about things because, you know, like you just talked about, there are areas where the union is very prevalent. It's very strong and it's done a great job. There are other areas where being right to work has been really successful and that's really done a great job. And it shouldn't be a one or the other situation. Uh, and a lot of the politics in this country, unfortunately, really recently with with uh, social media going as crazy as it has, have turned into for us or against us type arguments. And that is really frustrating. But uh, you guys have any other questions? I mean, honestly, I feel like this is a fairly, fairly good wrap up spot here and we're right around an hour. Any, any other no, follow up questions? I think we're winding down pretty good. I just want to thank Daniel and Scott for joining. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for being on the oh, podcast. No problem. I enjoyed great. it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, if you guys want to stick around after we do our outro music here, uh, we will say our formal goodbyes, but I'm going to go ahead and start rolling our outro music. Uh, if you guys enjoyed the podcast, do me a favor, go on, give us a positive rating. Uh, if you're really feeling great, give us a review because that's that substantially helps us grow as a podcast. Uh, if you want more information, head over to dieselandironproductions.com. You can click on the podcast tab and that will take you over to this particular episode. And you, uh, you are more than welcome to share your comments. We would love to hear feedback from you guys. Uh, but without any further ado, you guys have yourselves a great night. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Sweat and Grime. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.